Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me, show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk. Now, on with the show. Well, today's story tale wouldn't look out of place in any soap opera, and it happened just on the outskirts of Bristol. Today, we go back to the year 1935. It was the year when Alan Lane founded Penguin Books to publish the first mass market paperbacks in Britain. On January the 11th of this year, Amelia Earhart becomes the first person to fly solo from Hawaii to New York. And on the 16th of July in this year, the world's first parking meters are installed in Oklahoma City. But we're talking about May. Actually, we're talking about the 8th of May, two days after the Silver Jubilee celebrations for King George V. Back in the 1930s, There was no public assistance, and a lot of people in the area of Hannam, in the outskirts of Bristol, worked in the shoe trade, and probably worked two hours a day in a factory. And so their wages at the end of the week was 10 or 12 shillings. Many people were eventually turned out of where they lived for not paying their rent. Some of those who were in debt just went to the woods and built a shack and lived there. It was a common thing for shoemakers at that period to go to the factory at six o'clock in the morning and the foreman came out and said, nothing yet. Come back at nine o'clock. If you were lucky, you'd get an hour and a half's work for the whole day and that is all you'd get paid for. In the 1930s, there were various family living in Hannam Woods. There were two brothers by the name of Franklin whose origins were unknown. Living on the opposite side of the track was not family, a husband, wife, and one son. Harry was a quiet man who took a pride in his home, fitting a boiler and oil lamps and building a neat little brick path to the front door. In the fullness of time, he replaced the wooden gate with a smart metal one. The path and the gate posts still remain. Gladys was a girl from Easton, from Bean Street actually, rather pretty with dark hair. She married Harry in her teens and then, when this story takes place, they had a seven-year-old son called Dennis. The Knotts place was referred to as a tiny one-roomed cottage and the Franklins home as a similar cottage. The truth was rather different. 
But let's talk about the 8th of May. It was a perfect morning. The early sun had filtered through the trees, spotlighting dwellings that had been built there on the slopes of Hencliffe Wood. The papers were to write about the place as if it were a shantytown. The Evening Post stated the scene of the drama is a curious backwards collection of scattered cabins, they can hardly be called houses, in which live a numerous population, most of them working hard trying to exist on the land as smallholders and farm labourers. The children who grew up there loved the woods, and living arrangements were not as basic as the press would lead us to suppose. This was no squalid collection of primitive makeshift shacks, but homes of which the residents were proud as witnessed the names they called these homes the Nook, Woodbine Cottage and Rose Cottage. All the children were clean and tidy and attended the local church school in Hannam. The residents were not eking out a living, but were pig farmers, kept large coops of fowls, and in the summer months, Mr and Mrs Dyer had a little shop by the river where they sold cigarettes, sweets, lemonade and cockles to passers-by, either strolling along the river path or enjoying an afternoon boating. At 10am on that perfect May morning, Gladys was walking towards the Knot bungalow. Her son, Dennis, was at school, and she had just returned to live with her husband after 18 months of living apart. Henry Knott was busy doing the morning rounds, sorting out the animals on their small piece of land, when he heard gunshots ring out, and then the most blood-curdling screaming he could ever have imagined. Today's word of the week is actually used in this story and when I first read it I didn't realise that the meaning back then was different to now. Actually the word is dark and back then it meant ignorant. So please bear that in mind when you hear the rest of the story. Dolly Dyer and Honey Robbins who were living nearby heard the commotion and went to investigate. They found Arthur Franklin holding the gun. Hannah spoke to him politely, wishing him a good morning, no doubt wondering how best to deal with the situation. I want to get that black beast, he snarled. He was referring to Hanny Knott. At that moment, Mrs Dyer was unaware that the body of Gladys Knott was lying in some bushes nearby, but in view of Franklin's state of mind, she called out to a boy to fetch the police. Gladys was dead. The top of her head had been blown off. Two of the shots had been at close range, one from behind while she had been walking, which caused lacerations to her ear. She had then fallen and a second shot had been fired in a downward direction, blowing off the top of her head and brain. More people were arriving on the scene by this time and Gladys's body was discovered. Meanwhile, Harry Knott was crawling across a neighbouring field to a small hut where a telephone had been installed. Ernest Gregory from Forest Road in Kingswood was delivering coal to a nearby house, probably the Rawlings residence, when he saw Harry and went to his aid. Harry was bleeding profusely from his head wound and shoulder. Franklin was sitting quietly in the clearing when Police Sergeant Auger from Hannam Police Station made the arrest. In the meantime, the gun had disappeared. It was not found for three hours. 
The police didn't know the relationships of the victims and the prisoner, so assumed that the prisoner had shot his own wife. This wasn't helped by Franklin's confession later, when he said, After having a few words with my wife, I went down to Knott's ground following her. I took my single-barrelled gun. I saw Mr Knott and he ran into the shed after I shot my wife. I shot my wife twice, first in the head, and to make sure there was no feeling, I shot another in the head. I had no other cartridges, or I should have killed him too, and then there would have been two murders. I don't want to give reason, as I'm not interested. At the time of the incident, seven-year-old Dennis was at school. He attended Hannam Church of England School, and that day, all the pupils were very excited as they were celebrating the Silver Jubilee of King George V and Queen Mary, and they were all presented with a souvenir beaker. That was to be the only bright spot in the day for Dennis, who was taken to some neighbours, the Robins, where he spent the night, unaware of the tragedy that had unfolded at his home after he'd left home to walk to school. The reporters were soon on the scene, although the Evening World representative complained, the Knott's bungalow is a considerable distance from the main road and is only discovered after some distance of walking along country lanes, clearing two stars and then proceeding over a field. Having located the elusive residence, he noted that the small wooden structure commands a fine view across the woods and the River Avon. At 11.25, Inspector Simmons arrived on the scene, where, and he would later say in court, I saw the body of a woman lying face downwards. I examined the body and found the head had been completely shattered. I formed the opinion that the wound had been received as a result of a gunshot fired at close range. He then went on to the hut, where Police Sergeant Auger had Arthur Franklin under arrest. He said, I have just seen the body of a woman and shall detain you with venomously killing and slaying her by shooting her, and there may be a further charge of killing a man, but you will be informed of full particulars as early as possible. At this stage, the inspector took Gladys to be Franklin's wife. It was noted that a small wooden shed near the spot where Mrs Knott's body lay had holes in the door, and it was ascertained that this was where Harry Knott received his wounds. Another loaded shotgun was found in this shed. And meanwhile, the St John's Ambulance crew was summoned and the injured man was taken to Cosham Hospital in a critical condition. A police constable remained by his bedside all night. But this sorry tale really began some 18 months earlier when Bessie Gladys Knott had begun a relationship with 40-year-old Arthur Franklin, who lived just a few hundred yards away, with his brother, Frank, in a two-roomed stone cottage. Gladys moved in with the two brothers and her seven-year-old son, Dennis, used to come to the cottage at the weekends to have a bath and have his clothes washed. The arrangement continued until the 7th of May, 1935, when 26-year-old Gladys returned to live with her husband. Two days later, she was dead. Gladys was only 26 when she died, so she must have been very young when she married, and Harry was four years older. Her maiden name was Slocum, and her father was a dock labourer. At the inquest, her mother admitted 
she had not been in touch with her daughter for three years. Harry's family came from Brislington, and he had one sister living at home. And that he did. He definitely paid for her to have her hair permed and possibly hennaed, as well as the evening world describes her as auburn-haired, while neighbours recall her having dark hair. It seems Harry always hoped she would return, possibly for Dennis' sake, for, as a Mrs Coles who lived in Abbott's Way, Common Rose, quoted as saying, Dennis was very much attached to both his parents, although they lived apart. Neighbours Mr and Mrs Robbins took Dennis in. They were very fond of him, as he was friendly with the younger children in the family. The Robbins had five children, ranging in age from seven to eighteen. Mr Thomas Robbins is quoted as saying, As long as I have a crust of bread, Dennis can have half of it. He reported that Dennis had gone to school that morning. He knows now that his mother is dead. School children told him about it. I am going to the school today to ask the teachers to see if the children do not ask Dennis about the tragedy. And in the aftermath, Harry Knott lay in Cosham Hospital. Surgeons battled to save his left eye but to no avail. However, he managed to rally sufficiently to reassure his son and say, Hello Dennis, I am coming home soon. If you're an animal lover, then you will love this book. It is absolutely gorgeous and it was sent to me by the History Press. It's called Animal Folk Tales of Britain and Ireland by Sharon Jackstees and lovely illustrations by B. Baranowska. It has all the ingredients of classic tales like princesses and witches and, of course, the animals. And, of course, this book answers some of those questions you've always wanted to know. Like, how did the hedgehog get its spines? And how a robin got its red breast? And why a magpie is a thief? Now here's some animal advice. The early bird might get the worm, but the second mouse always gets the cheese. Arthur Franklin's initial court appearance at Staple Hill was brief. It was noted that Mr Harris, the clerk of the court intimated to Franklin that he was eligible for legal aid, but the prisoner gave a refusal. He was told he would be given another opportunity later, but Franklin said, You need not go to any trouble. I do not want legal aid. His trial itself took place at Gloucester Assizes a few weeks later and was described by the press as one of the shortest murder trials in the history of the English criminal court. The presiding judge was Mr Justice McNaughton. The whole thing took just six minutes. The pathologist from Bristol General Hospital, Dr Arthur Taylor, said that the wounds could not have been self-inflicted and the second shot, if not the first, must have caused instantaneous death. When asked about Gladys's wounds, Dr Taylor then went on to tell the court how, along with the police, he had found on bushes where Mrs Knott's body had been found human hair, which was identical to hers. He also said that the stains on her jumper were those of exploded gunpowder. Dr Fitzgibbons of Cosham Hospital described the gunshot wounds to Mr Knott's shoulder, face and left eye, which had to be removed. An x-ray showed between 40 and 50 pellets in the area of the shot. From the small force of penetration, he concluded the shots had perforated some hard substance first. Otherwise, Knott would very likely have lost his life. <laughs> 
Henry Knott had only just been released from hospital and he gave his account of the events with a heavily bandaged head. In November 1933, my wife left me and went to live with Franklin 150 yards away. The boy stayed with me. It was arranged that the boy should visit his mother every week and Franklin and I frequently had quarrels about the child. At the beginning of May this year, I went into Bristol with my wife who had arranged to take furnished apartments. While in Bristol, I saw the accused's brother, Frank. It was arranged that I should take the boy to my wife's rooms the same night. When I went there, my wife was not there and I was handed a note in her handwriting. I returned to my bungalow, taking the boy with me. On 7th of May, my wife came to my bungalow for the first time since she left me 18 months ago and took the boy with her when she left that night. The next morning, May the 8th, I was working in my pigsty some distance from my bungalow when I heard screams and shots from a gun coming from the distance of my bungalow. I immediately ran towards my bungalow and when I got near I saw Franklin standing with a gun in his hand. As I approached he said to me, and you too you rat. I then ran to my shed near my bungalow for cover. I had a loaded gun in there and took it and pointed it through the window at Franklin and pulled the trigger. But the cap misfired. Franklin then pointed his gun at me and fired and I received a blow full in the face. I was dazed for a bit and when I recovered somewhat I tried to replace the dud cap with a fresh one. Franklin was still standing with them in his hand and he said to me, I will play with you like a cat plays with a mouse. I asked him to put down his gun and fight it out, but he wouldn't. Then I saw him move away and heard him talking to some woman. I then looked around for my wife but could not find her. I saw a bunch of hair on the ground near my bungalow, which I recognised as my wife's, and I clawed across the field for help. The next witness, Dolly Dyer, said she saw Franklin standing by the Knott's bungalow and asked him if there was anything wrong. Franklin had replied, Yes, you'd better fetch the police. I've shot Gladys, and I've also put a bullet in Mr Knott. Her neighbour, Mrs Taylor, was with me, and we stayed with Franklin for about three quarters of an hour until the police arrived. When the prisoner's brother asked why he had done it, Franklin replied, I was all through that hateful kid, meaning Dennis said the witness. Franklin had said that he had been happy with Mrs Knott for the past 18 months and that he could not let her go back to her husband. When Police Sergeant Auger found Franklin by his bungalow, he inquired as to what had happened. Franklin replied, I shot her twice. She didn't suffer. I'll take you to where she is lying. They then went to the spot in some nearby bushes where Mrs Knott's body was lying. Franklin's brother, Frank, then went into the witness box and said that his brother was married. The prosecutor, Mr Pauling, asked Frank what he meant by that. Frank said, Well, he married Mrs Knott 18 months ago, in a way which is more binding than any legal tie. At which his brother shouted, Here, here. Mr Pauling then said, But he was not really legally married to Mrs Knott, or anybody else. Frank replied, no. Frank then went on to say that he slept elsewhere when Mrs Knott moved in, but she had kept the house for both of them. In a voice thick with emotion, Frank then went on to tell the court, when I saw him at 11 o'clock in the morning of the 8th of May, he told me he had killed Gladys. I asked him why he had not done the job properly and done himself him, and he replied, no, there has been enough slaughter already. 
When Frank was told that he would have to appear at the next Gloucester Assize, he replied, Yes, I'll be there, but if I can't say what I want to say, then I won't say anything. Superintendent Price of the Staple Hill Police Station then read out a statement by the prisoner after he had been charged with murder. I shot Gladys twice, and then to make sure I put another in her head. I then fired at Mr Knott, but did not kill him. If I'd had one more cartridge, I should have killed him too, and then there would be two murders. I don't want to give any reason, because I'm not interested. But in court, Franklin decided to reveal his reasons. Gladys Knott had been living with me for 18 months, and we always got on well together. When she first came to live with me, she was half-starved because her husband was too tired to make a living for her. For the last two years, she'd practically kept him by running a poultry farm. I saw her at different times and got to know her, and she agreed to come and live with me in 1933. Mr Knott tried to make terms, as he called it, over her coming down to live with me. He said if she would look after the boy and feed the fowls and generally help him in his laziness, he'd be quite willing for her to come down with me at night. He made that statement before my brother, did he not, Frank? When Gladys left me, I couldn't bear the thought of her going back to that black beast. When she left me that morning, I followed her up and shot her. And if I had had two or three more cartridges, I would have killed him by inches. The accused, Franklin, is in court. And when questioned further, he said he assumed Gladys had gone back for the sake of her son. And he admitted that he went after her with the sole intention of murder. Arthur Henry Franklin referred to as a smallholder of Hannam Wood, was addressed by the judge. Before you make your plea to the charge against you, I have to tell you that you are entitled by law to legal aid. I understand that you have refused legal aid up to now, but I want to tell you, before you plead, that you can have such aid. Do you desire to have it? Franklin replied, I do not wish for legal aid, my lord. The charge was then read to Franklin, who replied in a firm voice, Guilty. Guilty. The judge then placed the traditional black cap upon his head and pronounced, You have pleaded guilty to the charge of murder. For that crime, there is only one sentence the court can pass upon you, and that is death. Since the murder, Franklin has shown no emotion at all. Not through his arrest, his initial court appearances, and subsequent trial. Even now, as the warders led him from the dock, he was quite unemotional. The circumstances leading up to the awful events of the 8th of May were disclosed to the court, as was Franklin's statement regarding his attack on Harry Knott. He had said he intended playing with Mr Knott like a cat with a mouse, but he had no more cartridges and was unable to fire the gun. Witnesses at the scene said Franklin had announced he had shot Mrs Knott because she had returned to her husband. In the Western Daily Press on the 26th of June 1935, the public were informed that whilst in the condemned cell at Gloucester Prison, Franklin had maintained a stoical demeanour. His sole visitor was his brother, Frank, who came to see him on the 24th of June. The brothers were Roman Catholics, and Arthur Franklin received the administrations of the church from Father Matthew Roche, of St Peter's Church in Gloucester. On the 26th of June, the day of the execution, special precautions were taken by the police to prevent the crowd getting near the prison gates. The hanging was fixed for 8am 
and at 7.25, Father Roche was admitted into the prison to perform the last rites. Just before 8am, Mr. Sidney Allen, the county sheriff, and the under-sheriff, Mr. Herbert H. Scott, arrived together with Mr. Edward Graham, the prison doctor. Shortly after 8 o'clock, the formal notices of execution were posted outside the jail by a warder and the crowd surged forward to read the words. The executioner was Thomas W. Pierpoint, assisted by Robert Wilson. The jurors were compelled to view the body and one, Mr. Robert Williams of Quedgley, objected. The prison governor assured Mr. Williams that there was nothing to upset him. The coroner insisted it was one of those things that had to be done in important cases as this one, and so Mr. Williams had to go with the rest of the jury to do his civil duty. A verdict was recorded that Franklin died in the due execution of the law, and his death was instantaneous. The jury donated their fees to the Discharged Prisoners Aid Society. And what happened to those left behind? Well... Life in the little community began to settle back to some sort of normality. The brother, Frank, started the process of requesting the gun from the police. This took nearly two years, but in the end, as it was deemed that he had no way involved in the incident, and he was of good character, they handed it over to him. There were some long-abandoned stone quarries in the area where the Franklin's cottage was, and one of those had filled with water over the years to become quite a deep pool. About three feet out into the pool, there was a large protruding rock, which rises out of the water by a few feet. It was upon this rock that Frank Franklin shot himself. Franklin had stood on this rock, fired, and fell back into the pool, using the same gun that had been used in the earlier shootings. He was missed after a couple of days and it was the barking of Frank's dog that attracted the attention of people living close by. A report from the Daily Mirror, August 12th, 1937, suggested that brooding over his brother's execution two years before for the murder of Gladys was the reason behind Frank's suicide. Francis Joseph Franklin, better known as Frank, died aged 55. Death was cited as being due to a gunshot wound in the head. The police were ready to give up finding the gun until Mr Bransom of Tabernacle Road in Hannam volunteered the use of a specially strong magnet he had access to. The magnet was hooked up to a car engine and held under the surface of the pond. It found a lot of old tins and other debris until it managed to pull the gun out of the mud. And now we end our tale talking about Dennis. Remember, he was seven years old when his mother was shot. Well, he grew up to be a strong, handsome young man. He was called up for the National Service in 1945 and served three years in the army. After being demobbed, he started work with some agricultural contractors, Dennis and Philip Crew Brothers, in Hencliffe Wood, Hannam Abbots. They assisted with the work on local farms. He began going out with a pretty local girl called Betty and they were busy making the final arrangements for their wedding in the late summer of 1948. He was working with the Crew brothers one day, haymaking at a farm, 
thought to be at the top end of Wick, near Tog Hill. It was late in the day and work was almost done. Dennis volunteered to take the last bale of hay up the ladder. We don't know whether his foot slipped or he overbalanced, but he fell from the top of the ladder and broke his neck. He was only 21 years old. Harry Knott, glad as his husband, continued to live in his shack in Hencliffe Wood until the late 1960s when Kingswood Council bought his land and rehoused him at Cadbury Heath. He later remarried but outlived his second wife. He died at Cadbury Heath in November 1989, aged 84. Gladys was buried at Greenbank Cemetery. time for some back in the day facts. On the 19th of July 1970, the SS Great Britain returned to her original berth in Bristol City Docks with Prince Philip on board. This was the last leg of the journey from the Falkland Islands. On the 22nd of July 1849, 21 people were killed or injured when the Red Rover steamboat exploded in the floating harbour. On the 23rd of July, 1927, Noel Greyhound Racing Stadium opened with more than 7,000 first-night spectators. And on the 24th of July, on this day in 1704, Gibraltar was captured from Spain by a British fleet commanded by Sir George Rook. When talking about Gibraltar, the Chambers Book of Days 1864 edition says... No other rock or headland in Europe, perhaps, equals Gibraltar for commanding position and importance. Gibraltar was formally ceded to the British by the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713. I hope you enjoyed today's tale. I had some extra special help from Adam Price of St Stephen's Drama Group in Sanwell and Bradley Stoke Radio's very own Simon Green, who hosts the proper 90s shows on Thursday evenings at 6pm. Now, thanks to everyone who sent in suggestions for future shows or just nice comments. It's always great to hear from you. And you are determined to keep me very, very busy. One who did get in touch with me was Carly Henderson of Littlestoke. She loves the show and she suggested doing a special on Hannah Moore, who is actually a local lass. I've got some good news for you, Carly. I have been working on a Hannah Moore story and it will be coming up in the next few weeks. I hope, like me, you've been enjoying the weather and spending more time in your garden. The other day I had to get a new pair of gardening gloves, but they're both lefts, which on the one hand is great, but on the other hand it's just not right. And now I've just got enough time for a quick message from my friends over at My Drunk Movie Theatre. Hi there, I'm Kyle Sutton. I'm Trisha Campbell. And we're the hosts of My Drunk Movie Theatre. Join us every week as we go through the silly things that we wind up getting up to at our jobs working at a local multiplex. We also talk about all the current events that are happening in the movie world that affect us and affect you as the viewers. Trisha? (laughs) We also get off topic quite a bit and we'll ramble, so there's that too. 
Yeah, well, you know, alcohol does that to you. So hit the subscribe button. You can follow, listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, almost anywhere that your podcasts are available. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background... That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. I'm Kyle Sutton. I'm Trisha Campbell. And we're the hosts of My Drunk Movie Theater. Join us every week as we go through the silly things that we wind up getting up to at our jobs working at a local multiplex. We also talk about all the current events that are happening in the movie world that affect us and affect you as the viewers. Trisha? We also get off topic quite a bit and we'll ramble, so there's that too. Yeah, well, you know, alcohol does that to you. So hit the subscribe button. You can follow, listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, almost anywhere that your podcasts are available.